Well, good morning. My name is Eric Swanson. I'm the pastor here at Berean Bible Church. And we generally want to welcome you on this very special Resurrection Sunday morning. I want you to imagine for a second, you come home with your evening, or you come home with your family one evening, and only to find that your front door is wide open. Also, you see there are a few lights on in the house, and you definitely remember not leaving any lights on. You immediately get that fear. Someone is in your house. You slowly approach the front door and actually hear some rustling inside. Someone's in your house. But before you can grab your phone, a man bursts out the door, shoves right past you, and runs off. As he's running, you can see he clearly has some of your possessions in his hands. Instead of chasing after him, though, with some good discretion, you just decide to call the police. So you just witness a crime. And regarding this man who committed this crime, is he guilty? In your mind, of course he's guilty. He is 100%, not a doubt in your mind, guilty. I mean, you just saw it. You were there. You saw his face. You could clearly recognize him. He had your stuff in his hands. Of course he's guilty. You don't need a, a trial, a jury. He's guilty. You saw it. That being said, would you still expect to find evidence of his crime? Even though you know what happened, you saw it happen, yes, you would. You would still expect to find evidence. Any major event always leaves behind a trail of evidence. This morning, I want to talk to you about evidence. But not evidence for a crime, evidence for the resurrection. It is Resurrection Sunday, the day we remember the resurrection of Christ. I want to show you what the Bible says about that resurrection. If Jesus did rise from the dead, you would expect to see some evidence. And so I want to expose you to some of the the powerful evidences that do indeed exist in Scripture so that your faith can be strengthened. Before we begin, though, I've got to give you a disclaimer. Right off the bat, disclaimer, important, regarding the power of evidence, or some people call it evidentialism. It's just using evidences. Some Christians think that the reason people don't believe in Christianity and all that is because they don't have enough evidence. And so they go around trying to prove to non-Christians that Christianity is real. So they give evidences for the resurrection, evidences for the flood, evidences for creation, and so on. But that approach is totally misguided. Why? Because evidences in and of themselves do not have the power to change people. You catch that? Evidences in and of themselves do not have the power to change people. Just look at Pharaoh. He saw plenty of evidence. I mean, he witnessed the ten plagues firsthand. He saw it with his own eyes. He was there. But did he believe? No. Why? Because his heart was hardened, and no amount of evidence can ever change that. It's the same today. So I want you to first understand this point, this disclaimer. Biblical evidence, it's not for non-Christians. Biblical evidence is not for non-Christians. Rather, the gospel is for non-Christians. That is what they need to hear. You might ask then, well, so what's the point? Why bother with evidences at all? Are they worthless? No. Biblical, Biblical evidence, it's not intended to change unbelievers. Rather, it's intended to encourage true believers. 
Evidence is intended to encourage true believers. And that's the value of what's called evidentialism. It's to encourage the people of God. And for those who already believe in the gospel, their faith can be strengthened by studying evidences. And that's what we're going to do this morning. For those who already believe, I want to help strengthen your faith through great evidences. And and there's no evidence more encouraging to your faith than that for the resurrection. Now, studying evidences for the resurrection, it's like adding steel rebar to concrete, if that makes sense to you. It just, it just strengthens your foundation. It's going to make you stronger. And this fact did not escape the Apostle Paul. He, he knew how hugely important the resurrection is to your faith. You can open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As you're turning there, I'm going to read the first four verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which also you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. So you can stop there. There it is. One, two, three. He says of first importance, one, Christ died. Two, he was buried. Three, he was raised. And it culminates, of course, with that third one, the resurrection. He was raised. And Paul's not done, though. Look at the next verse. should be there right now, 1 Corinthians 15. Let's pick up verse 5. He just said Christ was raised on the third day, and after that, verse 5, then he appeared to Kephas, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. It's, It's pretty interesting when you think about this. Why does Paul spend four more verses telling us all the people Jesus appeared to after the the resurrection. And why did Jesus appear to all those people after he rose? You ever think about that? Why all the appearances? He stuck around for 40 days appearing to people. Why bother? He didn't really need to appear to anybody. He could have died, rose, and just went ascended straight to heaven. It wouldn't affect our salvation whatsoever would not affect the plan of salvation. So why all these appearance, appearances? One big answer is evidence. Jesus wanted his disciples to know that he rose. He wanted to give them evidence of his bodily, physical resurrection, not a spiritual resurrection, that he flesh and blood rose physically from the dead. And what did he do when he, gra- when he visited the disciples? He showed them his hands, his side. He said, look at me. He ate with them. He drank with them on purpose so that they would see that he was physically alive again. Thomas wasn't there at first, so he doubted. And so when Jesus finally appeared to him, do you remember what he said? Basically like, all right, Thomas, here I am. Let me prove it to you. Go ahead. You can touch You can touch him. Touch my hands. Touch the scars. Touch the side. Go ahead. I'll prove it to you. The disciples, they already were believers, but in appearing to them, Jesus was strengthening their belief. And think about this, not once 
did the resurrected Jesus appear to an unbeliever. Not once. He only appeared to those who were already his. And the evidences he gave of his resurrection were for them. The testimony of scripture, which was written for us, has the same motivation in mind. It's to give us evidence of his resurrection, not to build your faith, not to replace your faith, but to simply strengthen and encourage your faith. So again, that's going to be our task this morning, to observe the strong and the consistent testimony of Scripture that Christ has indeed risen from the dead. One more question, though. Do you ever doubt the faith? you ever find yourself doubting here and there a little bit, maybe a lot? In my Christian life, I went through one period of doubting, I remember it well, is right after I became a Christian. I became a Christian my freshman year of college, not long after. I had was talking to a Hindu friend of mine, and he challenged me. He challenged my faith. At the time, I had no idea. I could not respond at all, and it, it really stumbled me. It caused me to doubt everything I had just believed, and, and I doubted. But that Easter, that first Easter of my first year as a Christian, I myself heard a sermon on the reality of the resurrection. And truly, since that day, my faith was not made new, but it was strengthened. I had a new resolve. I never found myself doubting again. Why is that? It's because if you get the resurrection, think about this, if you get the resurrection, if you believe the truth that Jesus actually rose from the dead, then everything else falls into place. And it's easy. I mean, think about it. If you actually believe that Jesus rose... What else is hard to believe? Creation, the flood, parting the Red Sea. I mean, that's nothing. If he actually rose, if a guy rose from the dead, that's amazing. If Jesus actually rose and everything he said was true, the Bible is true, and you have no reason to doubt. But if he did not rise from the dead, everything he said was false. The Bible is false, and you have every reason to doubt. In fact, you should doubt. If Jesus did not rise, Christianity is utterly worthless. Don't even bother with it. If you disbelieve the resurrection, don't even bother with Christianity. The resurrection, it's a cardinal doctrine upon which the entire faith stands or falls. It's a linchpin. But if you're out there and you do at times struggle with doubt, I want to encourage you this morning as well to go ahead Put all your eggs in the resurrection basket. And truly, no Easter pun intended. But just put your eggs in the resurrection basket. If you have confidence, if you can have confidence in the resurrection, then you can have confidence in everything the Bible says. And God wants you to have confidence in everything. It's true. God is only pleased when we come to him by faith. But he has not left you without evidence in his word, so that your faith can be strengthened. And that's what we're doing this morning. That's enough for introduction. Let's just dive into it now. Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to give you seven evidences of the resurrection so that your faith may be strengthened. That's what we're going to do. Seven evidences of the resurrection so that your faith may be strengthened. Let's just start right away. Number one, evidence number one. The empty tomb. Evidence number one, the empty tomb. Empty tomb. It's one of the most significant 
evidences of the resurrection. And the fact that Christ's tomb was empty, that does not by itself prove the resurrection, but certainly a full tomb would disprove the resurrection. All the many opponents of Christianity, all they had to do was just provide the body. It's over. Just get the body. Provide the body of Christ. It's over. Just go to the tomb, drag him out, Christianity is over. But it never happened because the tomb was empty. Turn with me to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. Let's look at this first 10. Matthew 27, verses 57. We'll start there through 66. And this is the passage in Matthew that tells us what happened right after Christ was crucified. He was crucified, you know that. He died. What happened next? What happened right after he died? Look at Matthew 27. And let's start at verse 57. Matthew 27:57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Verse 62. Now, on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, We remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I'm going to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Big passage, but right away, from this passage, I want to point out to you three essential observations to make. Three critical facts you don't want to let pass you by here. First, Jesus was buried in a tomb of hewn-out rock covered by a large stone. He was buried in a tomb of hewn-out rock covered by a large stone. There was one way in this tomb. One way out is through the entrance. It's just a stone enclosure. This massive stone covered the entrance. It would have weighed from one to two tons. It was cylindrical in shape. They would have rolled it in and out of place. But once it was rolled in place, it was meant to not go anywhere. It was meant to stay there for a long time and seal the tomb. If you remember on Sunday morning, resurrection morning, Mary Magdalene and the other women... They went to the tomb so that they could continue to anoint Christ's body. And Mark 16, 3-4 records their thoughts. It reads this. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? They knew as they were getting close, like, wait a second. Who's going to let us in? We, we can't get past the stone ourselves. This thing's way too huge for us to move. Verse 4 says, Looking up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled away, although it was extremely large. There it is again. This was just this massive boulder, a a cylinder in shape, a couple tons. It wasn't impossible to move, but let's face it, one man couldn't move it alone. It would take several people. 
That's the first thing you need to observe in this passage. Second, the fact uh, is the fact that a Roman seal was placed on the tomb. A Roman seal was placed on the tomb. It's not like a waterproof seal. It's not the uh, picture here, but but it's a marker on the stone that symbolized the power and the authority of the Roman Empire. And the seal would have been attached to the stone such that if the stone was rolled away, the seal would have been broken. You would know. It's like a tamper-proof thing. Oh, someone has been here. Someone has opened this tomb. It's like a plastic water bottle today. If you twist that cap off and you break that seal, you know, well, hey, someone's opened this before me. And that's the idea there. The only difference is that in the first century, if you messed with the Roman seal, the penalty was death. And no joke here, the penalty was death. The seal came with the authority of Rome. It came with the backing of Rome. So if you broke the seal, it was your life. And breaking the seal was not taken lightly. Let me give you a third fact from this passage. That the tomb was guarded 24-7 by Roman soldiers. As we saw in Matthew 27, a Roman guard was placed in front of the tomb for the specific purpose of preventing the theft of the body. And that's why they were there, to, to prevent the theft of the body. The Pharisees knew that Christ claimed he would rise on the third day. They knew that. And they feared his disciples would steal the body. Having a Roman guard there, it, it just killed that idea. Failure to guard the tomb would mean immediate execution for the Roman guards. And I'm not making that up. Acts chapter 16, just think there. You don't have to turn there, but just remember that time. Paul, he's in prison. He's in prison for preaching the gospel in Acts 16. And what happens? Midnight, God causes an earthquake to come, and immediately, because of the earthquake, God intervenes. All the prison doors are flung open, and all the shackles just fall off of all the prisoners. Not just Paul, everybody. They're just, they're let free. And the jailer, do you remember what the jailer did in response to this? Acts 16.27 says, When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. He's there, he sees the doors open, he's like, oh great, they all escaped, and he's just going to kill himself. Because he knows, hey, they're going to kill me for this one anyway. He failed his job to guard the prisoners he knew his life was on the line. He's like, well, I guess I'm going to kill myself on my own terms. But Paul intervened, of course. But the point is, the penalty for failure for these Roman guards was death. And the same was true for the Roman guard guarding Christ's tomb. If they didn't defend the tomb to the death, they would be killed. And so there's, there's just no way. There's no way they're going to let anyone steal the tomb, or rather steal the body of Christ, and nor would they fall asleep on the job. So a quick recap, these three facts from this Matthew passage. We've got the tomb made of rock. There's a massive stone covering the tomb. The Roman seal is on the tomb. And you've got a squad of actual Roman soldiers guarding the tomb. That's the picture. Fast forward a little bit. What do we get? An empty tomb. So how did that happen? How how did the tomb become empty? How, How did the body leave? How could this have happened? These are some of the biblical facts. Let me give you now some of the options, the popular opinions on how the body went missing. This is what some people have come up with. Number one, 
Could this, the disciples have somehow overwhelmed the guards, stolen the body, and gotten away with it? The disciples, did they actually steal the body? The answer is, not a chance. First, John 20 reveals what the disciples do after Christ was crucified. They went into hiding. And they were scared that these men were, as we'll see later, they were cowards. They were scared for their own life, so they went into hiding after the, the crucifixion. And these cowards certainly would not risk assaulting the Roman guard and breaking the Roman seal. And furthermore, if this happened, the Roman guards would have simply testified, hey, the disciples stole the body. The disciples would have been arrested and executed. Game over. I mean, that's it. But there's, a, there's another major problem with this theory of the disciples stealing the body. If this were true, the disciples would have absolute proof of what? That Jesus was a liar. They would have the proof right there. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be God. And he claimed he would rise from the dead. Yet if the disciples sat there, gathered around the dead body of Jesus, they would know, without a doubt, that he was a phony. He was a fraud. He was just another fake. So what do you think they would do next? Do you really think that would inspire all of them unanimously to to give their entire lives over to the ministry of this man, even to the point of death? Would they do that? No. We'll talk more about this empty tomb theory later, but no part of it adds up or has real credibility. Another option, number two, could the women and disciples have found the wrong tomb? A different empty tomb. They stumbled upon the wrong tomb. That's that's just the mix-up here. Well, as Matthew 27 tells us, Mary Magdalene, she was at the tomb when Joseph put the body inside. So she knew for sure the right tomb. Also, you can be sure that the Roman guard was not going to get the wrong tomb. I mean, they knew the tomb that they were guarding. And even if this were true, let's just pretend the disciples, they stumbled upon the wrong tomb. Christ isn't there. Oh, he rose. All the Pharisees had to do was go to the real tomb, get the body. It's over. That, of course, didn't happen. This option does not make much sense at all. Number three, could the eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection have been hallucinating? The real option. Someone has actually proposed they all were just making or hallucinating and making it up. Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that some 500 people bore witness to the resurrection of Christ. And so were they all hallucinating? And even if they were, again, just go back to this. All they had to do was go to the tomb, get the body. It doesn't explain the empty tomb. One last one, number four. Could Jesus have survived the crucifixion and left the tomb himself? Could he have survived and and just made it out of there by himself? This is known as the swoon theory, where Jesus did not really die, merely swooned. He appeared dead. But I'll, I'll let you be the judge of this one. Picture Jesus. He's severely beaten. He's lost a ton of blood. He survived the 40 lashes, so just shards of flesh have been ripped off of his back. He's a mess. Then he was crucified, so he has huge gashes in his hands, feet, and side. But he lived. He lived through all of that. Then after surviving three days sealed in a tomb with up to 100 pounds of embalming wrappings already placed upon him, he woke up. Then 
after managing to unwrap himself, he also managed to single-handedly roll away this multi-ton boulder by himself and just carefully sneak past the guard. Then he appeared to the disciples, a broken, bloodied, pathetic man, barely clinging to life, and said, I made it. I'm risen. Here I am. This resurrection appearance then, of course, inspired the disciples that Jesus really did rise from the dead. So, of course, they started the church. Make sense? Yeah, I don't think so. And to the contrary, every record of Jesus appearing to his disciples was in, it was in glory. It was in power. It was in majesty. He was not resuscitated. He was resurrected, and he was very different after the fact. As soon theory, it's almost so ridiculous, it's not even worth mentioning, but nonetheless, it ignores essentially every detail given in the resurrection accounts, and such a theory itself cannot be accounted for. In the end, the situation presented in the Bible, it's the only one that fits all the evidence that Christ actually rose from the dead. And the empty tomb, it's one of the greatest evidences of the Lord's resurrection. The body was never found, the tomb was empty, and the world will never be able to explain this away. And just, just think about this. Christianity could have so easily been stopped, disproven, so many years ago if they just provided the body. Just get the body, find the body, and it's over. But they could never do it. This is why the first piece of evidence is a strong one. Evidence number one, the empty tomb. Let's move on. Evidence number two. The first witnesses, evidence number two, the first witnesses. Remember who they were? Who were the first people on the scene to the empty tomb and the resurrection? Who were the first people to see the resurrected Christ? The answer is women. They were all women. And this is incredibly significant. Why? Because in Jewish culture... At the time, the testimony of a woman was worthless. The testimony, their testimony wouldn't even hold up in court. They were disregarded. Some people today, of course, the disciples, they made it all up. They wrote the Bible. They're just making this all up. The story of the resurrection is just fiction. But here's a major problem with that theory. If that's true, if the disciples fabricated this story, they never, never would have made up the fact that the first and primary witnesses to the resurrection were all women. That would make the story too unbelievable. The story, this would just destroy the reliability and credibility of the story, and a Jewish audience would never accept this. This fact is supported by the reaction of the disciples themselves. You know, how did the disciples themselves react when the women showed up and said, hey, we just saw the empty tomb. We saw Christ. He's risen. How'd they react? Listen to Luke 24, 10 through 11. This is after the women saw these things. It says, now there were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. Also, the other women were with them, telling these things to the apostles. They're like, hey, we saw it. We saw he's risen. Verse 11, but these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. What, their testimony isn't good enough? Absolutely, their testimony was not good enough, because in that culture, wrongly, but nonetheless, they wouldn't listen to the women. 
In that patriarchal culture, to a Jewish audience, the testimony of a woman was not good enough. And even the disciples disregarded their testimony. And true, this may not be an earth-shattering piece of evidence, but it shows and adds to the case and the credibility of the gospel story. No fabricated Jewish story would ever have women as the first and primary witnesses of the resurrection. Evidence number three. Let's move on. The cover-up. The cover-up. Evidence three, the cover-up. We're made aware of this cover-up in Matthew. Turn again to Matthew 28, if you're not still there. Matthew 28. And let's look at verse 11. Matthew 20 and 11. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. This is after the resurrection. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over. And keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did just as they had been instructed. And this story has widely spread among the Jews and is the, and is to this day. Now think through this one, this cover-up story. This ties in with the idea that the disciples stole the body. The resurrection, as we said, it's a vital truth in Christianity. If, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, movement is over. In fact, it would have never began if he didn't rise. So think about this. Why didn't the Pharisees have the disciples arrested and put on trial for stealing the body? Why did that never happen? Now, that's what they claimed, right? So why no trial? And why not try and get the body of Jesus back? The disciples, they should have been executed for this crime. They broke the seal. They stole the body. They transgressed Rome. And surely one of the eleven would have given up the true location of the body if threatened with death. I mean, they were going to crack. And furthermore, why not charge the Roman guard to go get the body back? I mean, hey, you guys just failed to guard the tomb. You let the disciples steal the body, so go get it back. Find the body. Go interrogate. Go hunt them down. I mean, from so many angles, the lies of the disciples about the resurrection could have been disproved. But none of these happened. None of these ever happened. Why not? Why the cover-up? Why this cover-up story? Well, notice verse 11. Some of the Roman guard, they came back and they told the ruling Jews what they saw. What did they see? What is it there? What, what did they just see? Well, they saw angels descend from heaven and roll away the stone. And they saw them shining like lightning. They heard them speak to the women that Jesus had risen. And then they saw of the empty tomb. And Paul's together, this was earth-shattering. This, this blew them away, what they just saw, what they just witnessed. But notice this, how the chief priests reacted to their report. How did they respond to this testimony? They never doubted it. They never doubted what the guards told them about the angels and the empty tomb. And they never accused the guards of lying. Ever think about that? Why didn't they do that? Why didn't they turn the ruling, or rather the guards, over for execution immediately for failing to guard the tomb? I mean, surely they believed that the disciples had stole the body 
got past the guards. So why not try and get to the bottom of it and have the guards executed and go hunt down the disciples? A couple reasons. One, the Jews knew that the guards would be forced to testify before the governor of what they saw. And that's the last thing they wanted happening. They did not want the story of the resurrection to spread whatsoever. I mean, what if the governor actually believed the guards? And that just could not be allowed. They could not allow that to happen. What the guards saw could not spread. So instead, the chief priest paid the guards to lie, and they vowed to use their power over the governor to keep the guards safe from execution. Like, hey, we'll keep you safe. We'll cause trouble to keep you safe. But you sweep this thing under the rug. You tell people that the disciples stole the body. That's one reason why the the Jews made this cover-up story. But there's another reason. And here's the real observation to make. Think about this one. Based on all these facts, and based on the reaction that they never doubted it, these ruling Jews, they believed the story. They believed it. They believed the guards, that the angels came, they rolled away the stone, that Christ was risen, the tomb was empty. They believed it. They actually believed. You may say, oh, that doesn't make sense. I mean, why didn't they just accept Jesus as their Messiah then? If, if they believed, why, why are they still opposing it? But you have to remember, Christ's own prophecy against these wicked ruling Jews. Luke 16:31. But Jesus said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. He knew. Their hearts were darkened. That's why. And they covered it up. They covered up the resurrection which they knew to be true. But the facts underlying this cover-up in reality only serve to give greater evidence for the resurrection. That's evidence number three, the cover-up. Evidence number four now, the disciples' transformation. The disciples' transformation, number four. And here we come to a very strong piece of evidence as well, the transformation of the disciples. Remember, what were they like before the resurrection, the disciples of Christ? When when Jesus was arrested, what did they do? They ran away. They fled the scene. When Jesus was executed, crucified, what did they do then? They went into hiding. I mean, they were scared. And Peter, Peter's a perfect example of all of them. He's, he's pretty characteristic of all of the disciples. And he was a coward. Before the resurrection, Peter, the disciples, they were cowards. When Christ was arrested, Peter ran for his life to save his skin. He claimed he would never deny Jesus. That's exactly what he did. In fact, even when he was just accused of being a follower of Jesus, he just vehemently denied it. And even started cursing and swearing, denying Christ. He essentially stood by while Jesus, his master, was murdered. Then after Christ's death, where was Peter? Was he out there preaching the gospel, proclaiming the good news? No, he was still scared. He was with the others, cowering in the upper room, fearing for his life, scared to go out those doors. Yet, what are the disciples like, especially Peter, after the resurrection? What are they like? They're totally transformed. They're totally transformed. These once cowardly men become bold. 
Whereas before the resurrection, they feared for their lives. After the resurrection, they're all ready to lay down their lives. Before they were lambs, after they were lions. And none of the disciples changed more than Peter. Just after the resurrection and the ascension, we see Peter totally transformed. He's a new person. What happened? Acts chapter 2, verse 1 says, Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. And he goes on to preach an amazing sermon testifying of Christ, the Messiah, dead but alive again. Where did this come from? I mean, when was Peter able to kind of break out a, a bold, powerful sermon like this in the face of the same Jews who killed Christ? I mean, his life was on the line here. But Peter was no longer the same. 3,000 people were converted that day. In chapter 3, Peter preaches again. In chapter 4, he begins to suffer for the name of Christ. But what does he do this time? Does he run away? No more running away. Peter takes his stand, willing to die for Christ, and eventually he does. He's totally different. He's totally transformed. How can this change be explained? Radical, night and day, overnight. The answer is clear. The disciples were empowered and totally transformed by witnessing the resurrection and the subsequent coming of the Holy Spirit. Seeing the risen Lord, they realized everything he said was true. Their hearts, their mind were opened and they were firmly established in their faith. Nothing could shake them anymore. Nothing could shake them because they saw Christ rise from the dead. God supernaturally transformed them for his glory. And the radical transformation in the disciples, which began the church as we know it today, it cannot be explained apart from the resurrection. And remember, this is why any theory that has the disciples stealing the body just doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't make sense. Such a transformation of boldness and authority, power, fearlessness, mission, it could never take place if they all knew it was just a lie. If that were the case, all of their hopes and dreams were just shattered on the cross. Because after all, there's the Messiah, dead, and he never rose. He said he was going to, he didn't, he was a liar. That would be the end of it. If Jesus didn't rise, it would only crush what little faith they had left after the crucifixion. But that didn't happen. And to the contrary, they witnessed the risen Lord. And this was the great spark that ignited in them a fire for God. Evidence number five. The transformation of Paul. The transformation of Paul. Turn with me to Acts chapter nine. Acts chapter nine. I'll make this one brief because it's similar to number four, but it's not entirely the same. But this is a big one. This may be actually the number one evidence for the resurrection, the most significant one. I mean, how else can this transformation of Saul into Paul be explained? There's a man named Saul, and he was not a follower of Jesus. Saul hated Christ. He hated his disciples. He persecuted them. 
He had them arrested, even had them killed. Yet according to Acts chapter 9, Saul was converted, taking the name Paul. Why? Because he saw the resurrected Christ. It was the resurrection. Now it's one thing if if the disciples of Christ, his actual followers, claim to see the resurrection. Yeah, that's expected. Okay. But it's an entirely another thing if someone who hates Jesus actually claims to see him risen. And yet this is what happened to this man Saul who became Paul. The resurrected Jesus confronted Paul and transformed him such that the greatest enemy of the faith became the greatest advocate for the faith. <clears throat> and you have to understand how significant this is. Just, you know, if he were still alive, this is as if Osama bin Laden was converted to Christianity and went around preaching Christ. I mean, that's how radical the transformation from Saul to Paul was. They feared him. They knew he was the enemy number one of Christianity. And yet here he is. And literally, the turn of one page, you see the change. Acts chapter 8, verse 3 says, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. I mean, he was just their enemy. He hated them. But Acts chapter 9, look at verse 19. This is after he saw the resurrected Christ. and says, Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately, immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed. Why were they amazed? They were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? They're like, Hey, what's going on here? This is Saul. I mean, he is the biggest enemy of Christians. Why is he preaching Christ? Verse 22, But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. That's amazing, this transformation. And overall, the testimony of Paul, it is an earth-shattering evidence for the resurrection, to have an opponent of Christianity, the greatest opponent, who was just shortly before persecuting and killing Christians, overnight convert to their cause and become the number one advocate because he claimed to see the res- risen Lord is outstanding evidence that Christ did indeed rise from the dead. Number six, we're almost done here. Evidence number six, the persecution of the disciples. The persecution of the disciples. As I mentioned earlier, some people believe that the disciples made up the resurrection story, made it all up, they wrote the Bible, just fabricated it all. But if that were true, they would need something to gain. Or in other words, the only reason they would make this up is if they gained something. Here's the problem with that. They didn't gain anything by following Jesus or making this up. They didn't gain anything. Money, they were dirt poor. They didn't get any money out of this. Maybe you think, oh, they gained power. That's true. They had a little bit of power over a very small group of people. But you have to remember, Christians in the early church, they were faced with heavy persecution. Christian living had an extremely high cost back then, your life. It often cost you your life. And the fact that the faith began in such an environment after the resurrection, it's a strong proof of its reality. Just think of this. Ten of the eleven original disciples 
died a martyr's death because of their belief in Christ and his resurrection. And that's staggering. Here's the list. I'll read it for you. It's not in the Bible, but the early church records is where we get this from. So how they all died, how they were all martyred, specifically for their belief in Christ. Simon Peter, crucified upside down. James, the half-brother of Jesus, stoned and clubbed to death. Andrew, crucified. Matthew, killed by the sword. James, son of Alphaeus, crucified. Philip, crucified. Simon, crucified. Thaddeus, impaled by arrows. Thomas, killed by a spear thrust. Bartholomew, crucified. James, son of Zebedee, killed by the sword. The only person left was the apostle John. But even he was, although not martyred, he was exiled for his faith in Christ. You could add Paul to the list who was beheaded for Christ. Even the greatest enemy of Christ took his newfound faith to the grave. Now, do you think they all would have taken their lie to the grave with them like this? All of them. And what they gained, they, they wasted their entire lives to the point of death for, for a phony, for a fake Messiah whom they you know, stole the body. You think that at least one or two of them would have cracked and said, okay, okay, we made it up. Don't kill me. I, this is not worth it. It's just a lie. But none of them did. This is a powerful testimony to the reality of the resurrection. Last one here, evidence number seven, the church. Evidence number seven, the church. Last piece of evidence I want you to look at this morning. It's sitting down in front of me. It's you. It's the church. The existence of the church, it's a profound evidence for the resurrection of Christ. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, like I said before, it's over. There would be no church. You would not be here right now. Turn one last passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where we started. Let's turn back there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here Paul testifies of the bodily resurrection. And he also explains what our future resurrection will be like when we too will be raised from the dead and join Christ in heaven. 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 12. Verse 12. He says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you, some among you, say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we're even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. What's he saying? If Christ didn't rise, it's pointless. Christianity, worthless. You, you're a fool. If Christ did not rise, it's all over. And not only did the disciples, however, endure suffering and hardship because they had faith and witnessed this resurrection, but the entire early church also suffered for their faith in Christ and his resurrection. 
Why would they do that? Why would they suffer? What, what's their motivation? Could a defeated and dead Jesus, motivated by the lies of the 11 disciples, have moved them to suffer and give up their lives? Maybe a few. But could the entire church have survived and even thrived in the midst of just massive persecution? Rather, a risen, victorious, and powerful Jesus motivated them. And the survival of the church, the flourishing of the church, and the countless testimonies have changed lives since then are in and of themselves powerful evidences for the resurrection. Once again, all that the countless opponents of Christianity, all they have to do is disprove the resurrection and it's over. Game over, movement is dead. But the world has never been able to do this because you cannot disprove that which is true. Today we've looked at several evidences for the resurrection. Like we said at the beginning, if someone committed a crime, committed a murder, you would expect to find evidence. And likewise, if Jesus did rise from the dead, you would expect to find some evidence. And the Bible is replete with such evidence. And upon investigation, you can find it. And we come here today by faith, trusting and believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and that he rose from the grave. And, and you know what? The testimony of Scripture, it's enough. It's enough for us to believe. But examining the internal testimony of Scripture and, and seeing the evidence that does exist for the resurrection, it strengthens that foundation for our faith. And I hope today that your faith is strengthened and encouraged as you behold the resurrection of Jesus. However, I imagine some of you this morning, maybe you don't consider yourself a Christian. Or maybe you're just a nominal Christian, not really that serious about it. You haven't come to the point where you have faith, a true saving faith in this person, Jesus Christ, and his resurrection. You're here, you're just checking things out, kind of curious. Or maybe you feel obligated to come, you know, Christmas, Easter, you come twice a year. If that's you, we're glad you joined us. But I also want to encourage you this morning. I want to encourage you to consider this man, Jesus. And you've learned today of his resurrection from the grave. Seen a bunch of evidence for it. Have you stopped, though, to ask yourself one important question? Why? Why did he rise from the grave? And what's the point? Jesus rose from the dead to show his power over death and to complete his mission. Well, that begs the question, what was his mission? His mission was to die. Jesus is God himself in human flesh. He came to earth to die for us. His mission was to pay the penalty for your sins by dying on the cross. And that's the gospel. That's what Easter is all about. You have sin. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We all have sinned greatly before God. And that sin is hideous in the sight of God. He must reject it. And if you die in those sins, you will go to hell to pay for them and you'll be separated from God forever. God being perfectly righteous, he must judge sin. It's part of his holy perfection to judge sin. That includes your sin. That includes my sin. And the penalty means you will be separated for, from him forever. 
Nothing you can do about that. You can't stop that train. But God, being also perfectly loving, he came up with a solution where Christ, the Son of God, fully man, fully God, came to earth to be your substitute sacrifice. On the cross, Jesus took your sin upon himself and he paid the penalty that was due. He suffered the wrath of God on the cross so that sinners like you and me could be forgiven. And that was his mission. It was to die and pay the penalty for sins, to purchase forgiveness, and to offer redemption and reconciliation with God all through his death and then resurrection. And so now Jesus, he offers you forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation, salvation. What's it take? It just takes you having faith. If you would trust him for your salvation, if you would follow him with your life, you would be saved. If you turn away, repent of your sins and your sinful lifestyle and turn to him in a discipleship and a faith, he says you will know eternal life. And that's a promise. And he sealed that promise with his resurrection. And that's why we're here. And that's why we celebrate Easter. We look forward to that day when we will know God, we will be with him forever, and we ourselves will be resurrected by him and made fit to dwell with him for eternity. So I want to encourage all of you today to consider this Jesus and look upon him in faith. You've been confronted with his claims. You've been confronted with his resurrection. What are you going to do about it? You have to choose whether you will follow him or not. What are you going to do? John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So I urge you to, to choose him and to follow him. As we continue to celebrate Easter this morning, I want to leave you with a final thought. The tomb of Buddha, full. The tomb of Confucius, full. The tomb of Muhammad, full. The tomb of Joseph Smith, full. The tomb of Darwin, full. The tomb of Jesus Christ, empty. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Let's pray. Father God, we do cherish this uh, precious truth of our Savior Christ, his death for us. It was out of love that he came. It was out of love that he lived. It was out of love that he died for us, that we might be forgiven. We are sinners, Lord. Everyone in here, we have so much sin, it's, we can't even count it. And there's nothing we can do to escape our just fate of separation from you. But Lord, just thanks for your love. Thank you for loving us enough and so much that you sent Christ to die on this cross. And it wasn't just a physical death. He bore the wrath for our sins on that cross, paid for them. It's done. It's over. It's finished. And then he rose again, showing he was master over death. Or the salvation is ours if we just cling to Christ in faith, if we choose him, if we follow him, if we give him our lives in a radical way. And then you transform us. Thank you, Lord, for Christ. He's our Savior. We do give you our lives at this church. We want to be known for Christ. We want to make him known to the rest of the world who does not know him yet. And we pray for those. We pray for those who are lost, who don't know Christ, that they would be confronted by his claims and they would have no choice, that you would move in them, in their hearts, to bring them to salvation. 
May today be the day of, of their salvation. Thank you again for the resurrection. May we continue this rest of this day celebrating, remembering what has been done for us in the resurrection. But on top of that, Lord, woe is us if this is the only day we remember the resurrection. May we continually set Christ before us, his death, his resurrection. In the name we pray, amen.